Good friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. I'm Matt Sanderson. And once more, we're joined by... Uh, I'm Mike Mason. Hello again. And this episode, we're wrapping up our look at how the occult relates to Call of Cthulhu and the Cthulhu mythos. So last episode, we talked a lot about how the occult had influenced Call of Cthulhu, primarily Lovecraft, but then by extension Call of Cthulhu. And this time, we thought we'd see how the Cthulhu mythos has sort of returned the favour and embedded itself in real-world occultism. And then we'll we'll move on from there to talking a little bit about uh, how it's specifically used in the game, and uh, some ideas about how we might use particularly the occult skill in our own games. So what is this, Scott, about people using the actual Cthulhu mythos in their own occult practice? Yeah, I mean, this is a big thing. Since Lovecraft's heyday, a lot of occultists have seized upon the Cthulhu mythos and used elements of it in their own practices. And we'll go into a few examples, but it's really quite an odd thing because... I think every single example that I've I, I've looked into has acknowledged to some degree or another that none of this stuff is real. They just sort of see it as a useful framework or a, a useful set of terms of reference. The closest thing to a real belief, I suppose, is Kenneth Grant. He, he was a British occultist. I, he died much more recently than I thought, only back in 2011. He was uh, the private secretary to Alistair Crowley at some stage, He built upon lots of Crowley's beliefs and practices. So he took Crowley's teachings of uh, Thelema, his magical philosophy, his magical school, and he incorporated elements of Austin Osman Spare's work. Now, I mean, Mike, have you you encountered Austin Osman Spare? Uh, I have a little bit, yeah, yeah. I mean, Spare was a fascinating character. I mean, he doesn't have any direct link with Lovecraft, but, I mean, he certainly could be inspirational for, for Call of Cthulhu. And he's certainly someone I want to use as an NPC one day. So he, he was an artist, primarily, one of the official British war artists in the First World War, and he combined art and magic. He uh, did a lot of automatic drawing as a sort of ritual practice. And he created a series of practices which sort of then went on and became the foundation of chaos magic, which we'll talk about soon. And um, he was, yeah, like I say, an interesting character. Grant took some of his, his work as well, but he mixed it all together with the Cthulhu mythos. Grant's reasoning for this, he accepted the fact that Lovecraft believed he was making it up, but he suggested that perhaps Lovecraft, as a skilled and practised dreamer, had contacted entities beyond and and had been influenced by them, mm. that he was sort of tapping into something real as the, uh, as the foundations of his fiction. And he also claimed to be communicating with extraterrestrials in the oh, mid-50s yes. and associate them with the Cthulhu mythos. Yeah, I mean, he, well, he wrote a whole bunch of books that sort of mix all these these strands together, and they are heady reading. I mean, I, I'd certainly recommend them as inspiration for weird games. 
books like uh, you know, the, the Magical Revival is probably his main one, Cults of the Shadow and Alistair Crowley and the Hidden God. I mean, these, um, you know, if you can get your hands on them, and I, I think they're readily available, would, I think, add lots of fuel to your Cthulhu games. Yeah, yeah. potentially. I mean, at the end of the day, the whole, you know, uh, Kenneth Grant sort of stuff, it, it's all about archetypes. It's all about, you know, you, you, can, you can say the Cthulhu mythos or you could say Elvis. It, it doesn't really matter. It's... it's you know, in terms of where, where it come heralds from, in that sense. I, I kind of argue that that applies more when we come to chaos magic. Yeah, no, it's, it's, you know, which of which this comes out of, um, to some degree. Yeah, I mean, with, with Grant, I mean, Grant was much more, I'd say, in the, the mould of Alistair Crowley, where he looked for magical associations. I mean, there, there is this idea in ritual magic of correspondences. So, yeah, gods and, and colours and, and sounds and smells, incenses, uh, numbers, uh, the names of demons, the names of angels, these all have relations to each other, you know, primarily out of numerology. He extended this and he took a lot of elements from, from Crowley and mapped those onto various entities of the Cthulhu mythos. You can find this in, in his book, The Magical Revival, and it's really quite weird shit. Yeah, I mean, it's not nothing that's not been done in the game before. I mean, no, I, no. I ran a game in, in the 80s at Gencon UK where in the middle of a game set in the UK in the modern day, the players decided they wanted to go and look up Lovecraft which wasn't part of the scenario, but I went with it and said, yeah, you can find Lovecraft and, you know, you, can we read all his stories? Yeah, 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 what do we know now? Well, you know what you know from his stories. <laughs> so is it all true? I don't know, it's, you've just read a fiction. What, what do you think? Et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, mm. it's, it's, it's all kind of, you know, kind of fires off the same kind of cylinders in that regard. The Typhonian stuff is, um, you know, Lovecraft was contacted by alien intelligence intelligences and became a sort of a unconscious or conscious don't know a mouthpiece for the truth and alien truths of the cosmos is is where we're we going with this kind of stuff i mean it's, it's it's in the same league as the necronomicon's a real book which clearly isn't but i mean grant wasn't the only person who believed that i william lumley who was one of the people that uh, lovecraft did revisions for also believed that you know lovecraft was was in touch with intelligences through his dreams that you know this stuff wasn't made up there is a tales from the dark side episode i believe about lovecraft's pillow having particular properties that a guy picks up at a pawn shop yeah, that yeah. was written by Stephen King, or at least yeah. based on a story. Well, it's equally valid, to be honest, Matt. But to be honest, <laughs> we can go to most towns or cities and find somebody who believes that they're Jesus or yeah. somebody who believes they're in touch with whatever. They may or may not be in a psychiatric ward, but one it's of certainly, those. It's certainly, you know, it's certainly kind of, as Scott said, it's kind of interesting stuff if you kind of have, a, have an inkling to want to read, you know, what is fairly dense text and that kind yeah. of stuff. Um, it's not something to just kind of, oh, I fancy a, a light read tonight. <laughs> no. um, it isn't that in any way. But um, And also, it's not the kind of stuff if, I don't know, I think you need to have your head screwed on before going into this just to be safe and sound, really, and not sort of get carried away on madness, really. And and also, I think you need certain terms of reference to actually get yeah. a lot of what he's yeah. talking about. So knowledge of Alistair Crowley's work and the Golden Dawn and stuff like that is certainly beneficial. Because you use the term Typhonian there, Mike. What's that all about? Well, that's the kind of Did the um, Typhonian order, the OTO, Typhonian yeah. OTO, is that right? Is that so, that so, so what happened was Alistair Crowley 
joined a magical order, a German magical order called the OTO, the Ordo Templi Orientis, uh, back in the early 20th century. And uh, he, he rose through the ranks and ended up leading it, I believe. <laughs> like, like most uh, things, Carly entered. <laughs> <laughs> or Crowley entered a lot of things. But, <laughs> I mean, actually, I mean, there's an interesting aside. I mean, yeah, we, we talked about magical correspondences in the previous episode about the symbolism of magic. I mean, you know, Crowley wrote about sort of decrypting a lot of the OTO rituals as being heavy veils over sex magic. For example, there's a ritual that he wrote about where you take a ruby-tipped staff and place it in a, a sacred chalice. He basically decided that this, because it was an all-male magical order, meant buggery. Crowley obviously was fairly enthusiastic on the topic. And you want to see I, my magic wand? It's <laughs> yes. basically what it comes down to, yeah. right? Yeah, okay. that, that's, that's, that's what it boiled down to. The audience ain't getting the looks that me and Paul are showing at this point in time. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the, you know there, are, there was at least one hierarchy uh, or uh, within, I'm not sure if it's in this one or somewhere else, where you know, that uh, sexual act is the actual level of attainment. Yeah, I mean, this I, I, is, I think that is the OTO. This OTO, is very cult-like, yeah. though. I mean, this is like, oh, join our cult. Oh, you need to follow these things, and this means I need to have sex with you. Yeah, yeah. Drop, drop your trousers. That. Yeah. I, I, I did actually know a Wiccan coven a while back that had a very similar thing, and that was creepy as fuck. We should also say that, you know, based on what Scott just said, that that's one group that doesn't that's not all wiccans and etc uh, etc et yes you know what we use as an example here yes. mate, doesn't actually correspond to total use across the park as it were oh, not God, no, no. the same brush no sorry i should have made that very clear that yeah this was a coven that was using that as an excuse to get their end away and you know had nothing to do with you know standard wicker Going back to the OTO, Kenneth Grant basically decided that, as as Crowley's heir, that he should sort of take over his position in the OTO, and the OTO weren't really having that. And so they kicked him out, and he founded his own order, which he called the Typhonian OTO, and later just the Typhonian Order. So it's kind of interesting, I think, to how, how you put that into a game. When you say that Lovecraft, like you said, Mike, your players wanted to look at Lovecraft in the game, and you said, oh, that's fine ostensibly the game is set kind of in the real world so if i go to the library aren't lovecraft's books there and there are a couple of bits of fiction which very much play on this there's a, a novel that i wrote a review of for issue four of the blasphemous tome called strange eons by robert block which does play with the idea that everything lovecraft wrote was true but you know the books still exist in that world and you have scholars who are using them as as guides for what is to come i think it's probably the the first time it's really concretely done in yeah. uh, uh, Block's uh, Strange Aeons is where that happens, yeah. Yeah, that was the late 70s. Yeah, yeah, that's the one that really kind of nails it down. And, and of course, the, the other one that's, that's really played with that is uh, Charles Stross's The Laundry series, which you know, it does actually have, say, Cthulhu and Nyarlathotep in it, but also it has you know, Lovecraft's writing as fiction. And again, it's the same idea that he drew on something else. Well, Lovecraft, Lovecraft to an extent, also did it to his other fellow writers because he mentions Clark Ashton Smith in the uh, in the Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, mm. they, yeah, yes. they, they, they populate their stories. It's a, you know they're, they're in jokes throughout all that kind of Lovecraft circle of writers in that respect. And they ultimately, in terms of the game, whether Lovecraft or Lovecraft stories or anyone's mythos stories exist in your game world, is ultimately your cause keeper. I mean, I thought it would be a bit fun because the players thought they'd outthought me and they would, you know, all this, all this will show them and, and they'll, he'll have to admit something. And I just turned it back on them and, you know, 
Yeah, because it's not like reading Lovecraft stories would actually help you in I'm any way. I'm skulls by reading if the Dumbachara. If those things you know, were real. Yeah, it, it still doesn't tell you anything other than... How fucked you are. Yeah, so yeah. I thought that was, kind of, that was kind of fun, that, you know, we'd have this little sidetrack and ultimately they'd get nothing from it other than this realisation that's still in the same problem, you know, so... Yeah, <laughs> oh, cool. As, as we mentioned about In the Mouth of Madness when we were looking at our social media reviews last episode... Um, there is that wonderful section where they're walking up to the church in the film, um, quoting from Haunter of the Dark and saying, this thing reads like a guidebook. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a homage to that. There. Yes. Uh, and sort of building on Grant's legacy, I mean, there, there was another writer as well, um, I think he's alive actually, called Michael Bertio, who created, or he was responsible for sort of mixing other strands in there as well. He took a lot of the magic of, of Crowley and uh, mixed it together with voodoo, and also brought in elements of the Cthulhu mythos into that as well. He wrote a book called uh, the, the Gnostic Voodoo Workbook, which, on the whole, doesn't make much reference, but then all of a sudden, in the midst of it, you have a table of correspondences again, and you have all the entities of the mythos in there, as suddenly you can draw upon. Let's just get this straight. That yes, it has got those things, and you can meditate on them, and you can, you know, for you, you if you want to meditate on Yogg-Sothoth and what it means, and if you like focusing on time or the passage or deep time or whatever Yogg-Sothoth may mean to you in terms of you know what you've you know gathered from reading the stories or the game, whatever. If you want to meditate on that or you know, personalize that and intellectualize that in some way, that's fine. But we are dealing with the same thing as dealing with like the color red. You can yes. find the colour red in correspondences in magic books or green um, and you can meditate on that for the same thing. So we're not talking about anything unusual or special. It just happens to be it's talking the Cthulhu mythos so it triggers our buttons and goes, oh, they mentioned your cloth. Oh, that's cool. I mean, what do you get? I mean, you say about like meditating on it. What, what do you think these guys get out of? It seems to be predominantly guys get out of <laughs> uh, adopting elements of the Cthulhu mythos in, into their practices i mean what do they get out of their well, practices I mean, there's, there's, stop, but i mean there's again there's various things aren't there i mean but ultimately you know if you take a very simple kind of version of this is you know if you want to be more confident let's say as a person you may you may identify someone that is very confident maybe somebody in popular culture like, like i like off the top of my head, let's say james dean is really confident in your opinion and you could maybe uh meditate on that focus on that and trying to internalize James Dean's confidenceness in yourself to manifest confidence in your own personal life. So mm. I'm, I'm watering it down very, even talking very, you know, in a nutshell. But in a nutshell, that that's what we're talking about to some degree. I but mean, essentially, but there are other things. I could replace but, James Dean with Jesus. I mean, it's yeah. just a, trying to consider that person or you know their life or whatever. Or yeah, yeah. And you could is. go. To, you could take it a step further and go. We're going to do a ritual where we're going to try and manifest. Somebody might say the, the spirit of James Dean or the or we're just going to manifest the concept of James Dean in one or all of us and see how that affects us or, you know, see if we can come away with something beneficial from that, perhaps, or whatever. You know, that's a that's a, you know, a step on the on the scale a different way, you know, but you know, it's no different ultimately in the end result in that, you know, you're spending time using the person or the persona in some practice or magical working or however you want to call it what that is is one of the sort of foundational tools of chaos magic so chaos magic is something that came out of uh, the late 80s early 90s is sort of to traditional ritual magic what punk is to prog rock it was uh, sort of an expression of magic in the form of anyone can do it 
And one of the, the core teachings of chaos magic is that belief is a tool, that you adopt and discard beliefs as they are useful to you. So if believing that, you know, you are James Dean for a day, as the song goes, that if that does give you confidence or it gives you, you know, um, you know, say, some kind of sexual allure or whatever, then, you know, doing a right to invoke James Dean that way is perfectly valid. But it's more than that. I mean, you, you sort of build up structures of belief. So you could, for example, you know, adopt an existing belief structure like Christianity or voodoo or whatever and just say, right, I'm going to make this work for me. But at the end of it, you sort of say, right, it's done its job, right, yeah, I'll, I'll put that aside, it's not actually something I believe in, it's just I believed in it while it was useful to me. Didn't really believe in it then. Yeah, well, that's that's the thing, there's this idea in chaos magic that you try, during the time you're using something, to believe in it as wholly as possible, and then at the end of it you, you banish that belief. It just seems a bit weird to call it magic. Well, the idea of is, is that it just you're, to, be, to be a bit provocative. No, no, no. I mean, the, the idea of it is that you your transformation. But it's like visualization, or but, you know, no, no, like it's, that. It's, 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 it's much more mundane. That is a technique. It's not the end result. You adopt this this belief system as a way of achieving the kinds of results that you would with magic. Chaos magic is a strange mixture of what's referred to as high and low magic. So high magic is what we were talking about in the last episode, that sort of transformative, personal transformative side. What, to make yourself a better person in some way? Or, or, or to achieve some form of enlightenment. It's, it's not just self-help. Or some sort of benefit. Well. It, it, no, it, it's, really? it's, it's more mystical. Yeah, it's like the idea of you know, what you're trying to achieve through yoga or meditation or whatever. It's not just you know, sort of perfecting the self, but it's contacting something outside yourself or something greater than yourself. Um, that's kind of what yeah. I mean. Yoga doesn't call itself magic. No, but yoga you know, means union. And the idea is that you're you know, ultimately through yogic practices, you're trying to create a union with the, you know, the greater consciousness of the world or the universe. I just kind of struggled to see why it calls itself magic as a practice. Cause it... Well, I mean, that, that's, that's what high magic has always done. Going back to the Rosicrucians, going back to the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, Crowley, Thelema, the OTO. It's always been about transcendence you also have low magic so low magic is trying to affect the physical world it's trying to make your wishes come true it's trying to make people fall in love with you or get wealthy or so external things to yourself yes the other kind of just the way of putting it is one is kind of quite intellectualized one is quite practical yeah Mm. if you're talking about the golden dawn you've got a load of like wealthy you know types who got not a lot to do with their time and want to spend their time doing rituals and intellectualizing things and you know one-upping each other or whatever um and then you've got you know the the other end the hedge witch for want of a better word who is you know making charms healing charms or whatever it would be um you know for a more practical effect so that's just another way of looking at it potentially um you mm. know again i'm kind of balling these up into quite you know easy chunks rather than you know. Going back to what you were saying before, Paul, I've known chaos magicians who've, who've done you know, both kinds of magic and who've used these belief systems as a way of, of formulating these results. And maybe they want to bring some part of James Dean into themselves and have it there permanently to, to change who they are. Or maybe they just want to get their end away and you know, are trying to temporarily you know, make themselves a bit more magnetic. 
But yeah, I mean, the whole idea of, of adopting different belief systems is it can be anything. I mean, there's a particular chaos magic writer called Phil Hine. Uh, he was the editor of a magazine called Chaos International. He's written a few books on chaos magic. He wrote one book in particular called The Pseudonomicon, which is a complete guide to using the Cthulhu mythos in chaos magic. His way of explaining it, why he chose that particular set of, of images, that particular belief system, is that it inspires a sense of awe in him, that the... The whole idea is that the entities of the Cthulhu mythos are ineffable, they're so much greater than us. Yes, they're terrifying, they're alien, but it sort of inspires something in him that no other belief system does. Isn't that what I was talking about at the end of our last episode, though? just that sense of wonder? Yes. Because whenever exactly. I get that, I'm always like, I'll put that into a game, but in terms of real life, I kind of put it at arm's length. Right. Because so- it's just like a red light that's just sort of saying, oh, that's kind of a nice shiny thing. Yeah, no. So, so for some magicians, that is specifically what they are trying to accomplish. Yeah, that 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 sense of of awe and wonder for real. Mm. But yeah, I mean, they're not the only ones who sort of drew upon this idea of the mythos being fictional but still a useful set of uh, ideas. I take it you're all familiar with Anton LaVey. He founded the, the Church of Satan in the late 60s, wrote the Satanic Bible in 1969. In 1972, he wrote a book called The Satanic Rituals. And he uh, put a couple of rituals in there, one of which is an invocation of yogg sothoth and another of which is a, an act of worship to Cthulhu. His reasoning for this was that, again, you know, he, he accepted that they were fictional, though he thought that perhaps there might be you know, some analogue to something greater and weirder outside. But again, yeah, I, I think he found it a useful set of images to use. And that's what it comes down to in a lot of these times. It's also, let's not escape the fact that, you know, they're trying to sell books hmm. and they're picking up on pop- popular culture or areas of popular culture where they think they're going to get a readership. Well, the fact that he called it Church of Satan, I mean, if that's not <laughs> trolling go, and just yeah. drawing attention, what is? <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, particularly seeing as the Church of Satan doesn't necessarily accept the actual existence of Satan. Well, exactly, it's not nothing to do with it, really. Well, yeah. really. Well, you know. that's the argument, technically, but then they chose to call it the Church of Ex- Satan. No, exactly. So it's yeah. like, yeah. they know what they're yeah. doing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They yeah. can intellectualise it away, and so it's just Satan meaning the, what is it, the, the rebellious one or something. Yeah, yeah but basically, the, yeah, well, the yeah. Satanic Bible is basically, you know, a sort of libertine tract. It's sort of, yeah, it's, it's the shaking off of conventional morality and... Uh, the idea that a lot of the things that are seen as sinful in life are actually good. Which is, you can understand why a load of Hollywood types would find that quite an appealing... Absolutely, yeah. Well, I think there's a lot of institutions which think that actual debauched things are quite good. They just uh, yeah. keep it under their hats, or under their uh, pointed hats. <laughs> and then after you got after LeVay, you get to the wonders of the Simon Necronomicon. Oh, God, yes. And the whole box of wonders that that is. Rushing out, oh, I've gone to the bookshop. There's actually a copy of the Necronomicon in paperback. <laughs> I know. I, mean, I, can wow. be, I can remember being quite freaked out. I thought it wasn't real, those. but it's real. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's written by Simon. I've never heard of him. <laughs> but I, I have to buy it anyway, because it's going to have everything I need for the gaming. It's got the secret knowledge, It's got Mike. the secret knowledge, and I can use it for all these scenarios and that. And then you start reading it, 
<laughs> Lots of tripe. Has yeah. It hasn't even got game stats in it. No, no stats, no scenario seats. <laughs> However, it makes a nice prop if you want to shell out the horrendous amount of money for the le- um, the limited edition leather-bound, oh. silver, gilt-edged thing. Well, let me guess, you've got that? No, but I keep looking at it on eBay and going, I haven't got that kind of money. The voice <laughs> the in your head is saying it's the correct thing. No, <laughs> no, no. It's only the price tag that's put me off. But yeah, I mean, the, the Simon Necronomicon is one of a number of Necronomicons out there. And I think at some point we should probably do an episode about the Necronomicon. But the Simon Necronomicon particularly is a sort of a, an odd mixture of ancient Middle Eastern beliefs, Babylonian beliefs, you know, magical systems there and mixing in a lot of names. Oh, Solomon stuff as yeah. well. And It is just, you know, like a lot of stuff put through a, a blender, you know, yeah, a bit of Cthulhu added. Cthulhu added, yeah. Yeah. Now we've added Cthulhu. <laughs> More tentacles per square inch. There, there is actually one ritual in the, the, the Necronomicon that does call for a human sacrifice. Good. So if any of our listeners have carried this out, please don't let us know. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, on, yeah, while we're on this part, I just want to check at this point in the podcast, uh, who's the Randolph Carter today? Is it Matt I, or Scott? Uh, no, no, it's me. Because I thought Paul was the Randolph Carter. I'm Randolph Carter, and so is my fish. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was my parrot. (laughs) So do you you want to explain why you brought this up, Mike? Uh, I I think it's time to talk about the elephant in the room, or the fish in the room. Dagon in the room. (laughs) Dagon in the room. The esoteric order of Dagon. I'm not talking the one in the Lovecraft story, I'm talking the real one. The real one. Yeah, love, there, love. there is a well, real esoteric... Well, I, I say real, I, I mean, they have a website, they have a pamphlet you can download from there. Well, if they've got a website, I mean, yeah. what more do you need? That, that oh, can sounds I like start? a link in the show notes. Can I ask one question? Were they founded before or after Lovecraft wrote <laughs> the story? I, I think, Just to I be think, clear. I think they were founded about 15 years ago, Paul. Oh. So. Early 80s, I believe. Around about oh, the time a certain game came but out. But based on all oh, the... you, think, you think it's that old, do you? I, 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 I can only find records going back about 15, 20 years. I, I read something that um, they'd started early 80s, which is funnily, mm. funnily if about the time a game called Call of Cthulhu came out, so I don't know if anyone, <laughs> if anyone got playing it, and I don't know if it was inspired, I don't know. It'd be funny if like in a few hundred years, maybe there's a bit of a, a minor apocalypse. Just a minor one. Well, mankind survives and then they're like digging around, and they find these books, you know, the Call of Cthulhu but they don't know that it was it, this must have been a religion. You know, people... Uh, you know, they, they, there's they all played, these, these, these gatherings roles. every year where they, thousands yeah. of people come yeah, to Yeah, they, they would take on the roles of characters from the stories. You know, that must they, have been for like some sort of path to enlightenment. They, they, they would roll dice for divination yeah. to get the answers from the gods or the, the keeper of arcane law, as they called it. They, yeah. In one version, they'd climb up in levels of enlightenment. <laughs> the horror. I see you after been to the Church of Elvis. Hey, are we going to the Church of Elvis? Well, I, I'll, I'm, if you're going to, you know, if you're going to follow that mm. that new religion, oh, I'll see. I'm still with Elvis, so I'll okay. I'll see you after the service finishes. Uh huh. All right. Now let's take a look at the occult in the Call of Cthulhu RPG. Now you've you've been our point man on this, haven't you, Matt? So what what, what can you tell us about the way that? the occult in general has been used as a theme in Call of mm-hmm. Cthulhu. Uh, I didn't want to go down the spoiler territory and pick individual scenarios and say, well, this is the central linchpin to this story, but thought there are, there are a couple of scenario examples where I can say X happens without it being too spoilery. But 
the real central thread that I found looking through uh, looking through the library was that this is something really that's been taken up and run with more in Gaslight than it has in any other era of play. Well, that's interesting. I mean, it's perhaps slightly anachronistic because, you know, in terms of a lot of the, the occult orders that we might perhaps think of these days, a lot of them probably had their heyday in the, the Edwardian or, you know, times or even the 1920s. Mm-hmm. So they're probably closer to, to classic era. Well, they are. But I mean, the thing is, the Victorian era bleeds into the Edwardian era. If you're not, you know, if you're not mm. being too sticky about the, the historics of it all, Edwardian, Victorian, you know, smish, mash, mosh. Also, you know, Victorian, you do see an upsweep, you know, see an upsweep in spiritualism and the whole mm, thing. And, yes. you know, the, and the Golden Door were trolling around and, and the rest of it. And um, it is all there. And the thing is, it's pretty easy to find that stuff even if you know even to you know just beyond the surface layer of information so in terms of how much research you want to do for your scenario it's pretty easy obtainable whereas going back and researching 16th century stuff is a bit more of an ask to be frank Mm -hmm. and the readings it's not as easy to read i wonder also with the 20s there's a lot more in the 20s that's more akin to modern day they've got motor cars they've got telephones and so on you go back to gaslight it's only another 20 30 years but you go back to Gaslight and the world is a very different place. Mm. So putting in these, you know, magical orders and everything, just it fills in some gaps and it feels an easy fit. Yeah, I just I also just think generally people, you know, if you if you're not, you know, that well versed in things, it's pretty easy to, you know, look at old Golden Dawn, look at the years it operated. Mm. Oh, that's Victorian. I know something was happening then. Mm-hmm. I'll just set mine there. Because mm. the 1920s, it's still there's a there is a lot of you know strange societies in the 1920s and 30s um some of them are more well known than others and many many have been forgotten about or require quite deep research to to know about them whereas a lot of victorian stuff is just a bit more well known so it's easy to just say well i'll just do that and mm-hmm. i know they exist in the victorian times so i'll set my gas i'll tell it in gaslight there's also a certain aesthetic which kind of fits there as well um i know in the collection of scenarios dark designs it advocates or pretty much encourages that the PCs, investigators, be members of the upper classes, the wealthy, the social elite, and those are the people that had the means and resources to be able to yes. dabble in such things. So, again, it, it's another natural fit that it seems to really come into play here, more so than the wealth of the 20s or the different social climates and so on. It's also fair to say that Cthulhu by Gaslight, certainly in the first few iterations of it, was very, very much set in the strata of upper middle to, to upper class players yes. uh, in terms of investigators. Mm-hmm. It actually says, certainly in one edition of Gaslight, that you shouldn't play working class um, investigators because it would be no fun. I'm not sure why it wouldn't be no fun, but for me... Because they're going out to work every day. Go, no, well, no, I mean, to me, it's like, well, they have access to all the places that... Yeah. <laughs> Nobody else does. Yeah. So surely that would be more fun. They're the ones going down the sewers. They're the ones going, you know, they, they, they can get in the secret workman's entrance and find out what's going on in the cult library in the middle of the night. Well, and, and also, you know, that lack of power that they have actually adds to the horror. Well, in, indeed, indeed. But, you know, that was, that was how it was in, in those days uh, in terms of Cthulhu writing. In fact, even in the most recent edition of Cthulhu by Gaslight, there is a whole chapter on, um, entitled, The Occult in the 1890s, detailing such society, mostly societies rather than practices per se. Um, it looks at the Theosophical Society that we've already mentioned, Freemasonry, Golden Dawn, they're going to come up again, Spiritualism, as mentioned, and also some people we've interacted oh, with yes. as well, the Society for Psychical Research. It was also a time period when probably some of the more famous tomes or famous grimoires were being published 
such as the book of the Sacred Mag- uh, Magic of Abimel and the Mage, that was in 1895. Plus, I think you had uh, Crowley start or Crowley Crowley, however you pronounce, starting to come out with the likes of the Lesser Key of Solomon the King. So, yeah, they're all starting to really come into public prominence about this time. Yeah, I mean, most of Crowley's major writings were, I'd say, from 1910 onwards. Mm-hmm. So at the very back end. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, we're, we're dealing with, that we tend to look at books of the thing, but, you know, you're also dealing with periods where pamphlets and leaflets and talks and mm-hmm. we're, we're just, you know, with this massive information was coming in various media, as we call it today, we tend to, historically to look back and only see books because that's what tends to last or what is catalogued. There is an upswell of media meetings and pamphlets and all this sort of stuff going on and around these fringes of these things so well, yeah the, the classic start for horror on your express begins with going to uh, attend a meeting for given by professor smith about ghosts caught on camera and such so yeah very much one of those kind of meetings yeah, i think the probably the definitive book about the occult in gaslight has to be from pagan oddly enough the golden dawn mm. marketed as a source book of victorian occult incre- intrigue for call of cthulhu but long out of print, we should point out. And yeah. also horrendously expensive when it does pop up on sale. <laughs> Describes the history of the Order, uh, the way for investigators to be members of the Order, people they would meet, so there's a whole raft of different uh, bios in there. Of yeah, I mean, members. because there were all sorts of interesting people who were involved with Golden Dawn. Oh, hell yeah, Yates, Mathers, yeah, yeah a whole, whole list of people. And also, indeed, their magical, with a K, practices. Well, actually, no, well, no, uh, yeah, no, 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 they marked it as having K in the book. Yeah, but that would be anachronistic again, because that's something Alistair Crowley brought in, in Magic and Theory and Practice, which I think was published around 1920. I blame Pagan, not me, I'm just reporting yeah. what was on the book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, some of the, more so than the groups of people that you'd find in Cthulhu by Gaslight, um, it does go into some more mechanical advantages of, and inverted commas here, magic, or other odd abilities okay uh, i mean that's interesting so you know in this conventional occult magic does have an effect upon the world oh hell yeah um you've got details of like, the hexagram rituals astrology cartomancy talismans this is where i was going to say about uh, going to look at this in a different light because i think their wand creation is very different to uh, the <laughs> one you uh, the one you previously mentioned uh dowsing spirit vision exorcism astral travel there's a whole bit on the uh, the astral plane there um Contacting and binding elemental spirits, invisibility, which is always a Goetia special of thou shalt be able to go forth invisible. Oh, mm. sorry, you've just reminded me of one of my favourite Crowley anecdotes, uh-huh. um, which is that Crowley was at one point apparently very interested in the idea of becoming invisible. And he, I can't remember where he got it from, but he decided that a lot of this had to do with the correspondence with the colour orange. And so there is this possibly apocryphal story of someone attending a gentleman's club in London and seeing this this figure dressed in orange robes covered in orange face paint just wandering around and, and stopping one of the waiters and saying what, what, what is me? that you know, what, 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 what is that gentleman over there doing and and the the waiter just saying very patiently oh that's just Mr Crowley he's being invisible again sometimes I do 
I do think that Mr. Crowley is the only person who's ever done any magic in the entirety of the history of the human race. <laughs> He's the only one who ever gets mentioned. But uh, there are others. Yes, but he, but he was a character. He was a character, and certainly... Always... But did he actually do any magic? Oh, well, he did fuck tons. He, well, yeah. he says he did. Well, he, 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 he did do a number of important things. I mean, he was one of the people who popularised Eastern occult traditions in the West. Yeah, but that so wasn't like... the question, Scott. Scott no. Paul, went, did he do any magic? And you went, yes. Or something. But yes, he did loads. Right, OK. Well, that's, well, that's evidence enough. Right. You could say he did a load of vanishing acts from his creditors. Did he? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yes. Thinking of the scenario collections, as mentioned, there's uh, the two for Gaslight, Sacraments of Evil and Dark Designs. Uh, Dark Designs, which also marks itself as occult terrors in 1890s England. One from Sacraments of Evil, which I remember playing um, actually at the MKRPG Club. I think you were with me for that mm. one, uh, Paul. Uh, there was uh, one called Eyes of a, Eyes of a Stranger, uh, which started with a seance. I don't recall it. I'm not no. sure I was there for that one. Oh, no, well, yeah, the, that one starts with the sounds. And it's also not the first time that such a, uh, a set piece has been used in games. Well, well I mean, yes. <laughs> we, have, we have added them to masks to a certain degree because some people mm. might want to try and contact the spirit of a certain journalist. Oh, um, yeah, it's certainly in, yeah. certainly in put play. Well, and, and also there's the, the campaign we played. Oh, I was just about to say, yeah, Curse yeah. of Seven, which is, a, funnily enough, a gaslight campaign, does feature seances quite prominently in that certain part. So, yeah. You can also find them in more 20s campaigns, Day of the Beast and Trail of Sothogwa. So, yeah, they, they get around a bit, but uh, hmm. it's, a good, it's a good horror trope. When can't you freak out players with a good seance? Well, it's, you know, you can, you can have something happen to them without killing them. You know, you can have something bad happen, and, you know, some mini-possession or some manifestation in the middle of, you know, and, everyone, and, and you've already set the scene because it's a seance, so you've already inbuilt some atmosphere because everyone knows it's, oh, something is creepy. And it's cool. It's just easy. It's, it's easy, but it works. It's effective. And especially if you start dimming the lights and you start, I'm shuttling the spirits. Also, has anybody not taken part in a seance? Uh, I've not taken part in a real one. Really? Oh, I, yeah. I have. Oh, it's yeah. when's that a real one? <laughs> as, <laughs> in me, as in me, as a person that's oh, not I playing see. a game, has not oh, sat okay. down at a table right. and done it. Oh, right. oh blimey! Yeah, it, it's an experience. I, 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 I did it while a friend of mine was filming a pilot for a reality TV show that never happened. And well, there's part a scenario it, right there. <clears throat> and part of it did involve us having a seance in a creepy old outbuilding. And I was sitting between these two mediums who had been hired for this. And one of them was this woman uh, called Paula, who was an incredibly theatrical woman. We were sitting there in the pitch dark, being filmed with infrared cameras. And at some point, you know, during the seance, she starts twisting around in her chair and, and, and turns around and starts growling in my ear, telling me, telling me that she's going to eat my soul and Oh, like that. that's fantastic. And, and they couldn't use any of the footage because I was just pissing myself laughing. <laughs> so it sounds like a script from The Evil Dead, but, you know. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, you're just laughing because they know that she's going to go hungry. Really. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, you picked on yeah. the wrong person here, bitch. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, you, could, you can, you know, for seance in a scenario, you could substitute a Ouija board or yeah. whatever, mm. you know, whatever rite or divination ritual you want to, you know, do in, you know. It's, well, uh, that, that sort of leads to an interesting point, which is, I mean, we talked a little bit before about the idea that these magical rituals and, and practices could sort of be a mask for the Cthulhu mythos. And so even if we don't have a world in our games where the spirits of the dead can be contacted, 
that still doesn't mean that a seance isn't going to contact something. Yeah, I mean, we, we deal with scenarios all the time where something from beyond is having an effect on the material world where mm. the investigators live. You know, influencing somebody to do something, possessing them at times, trying to break through so they're kind of coercing someone to set up the ritual so they can break through. Well, it's the same thing with the seance. You, you know, they could channel in and speak and pretend to be somebody else. They could say, yes, I am King George. <laughs> Yes, don't do this, this and this, and that's actually going to let me come and take over your body and then I'll go and run around and do my mythos stuff. Well, one thing I've, I've loved doing in a few scenarios is uh, having a character, usually a player character, who is a fraudulent medium, who knows that they're a fake and is putting it all on, who at some point just contacts something real. It's, you know, sort of, right, now, what are you going to do with this? All this stuff that you've just been making up, well, it's happening for real now. Yeah. Well, it's the classic, you know, the poltergeist when the, the team turns up at the house and it's all like, oh, yeah, we, you know, we saw the other day a fork move <laughs> yes. or whatever it is. And they open the door, it's just like crazy shit flying around. You know, like, Brilliant. <laughs> well, there's the, uh, the other one, the beginning of, I think it's the sequel, uh, Ouija, Origin of Evil. Oh, yes. Yeah. 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 I, I love that bit at the beginning where they're setting up. It's like, well, this is how we fake it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, that, that is. I, I, I never saw the original film, but that is actually a really good one. I mean, that's Mike Flanagan who later went on to do things like The Haunting of Hill House and uh, did Absentia and all sorts of other cool stuff. And yeah, I think it's on Netflix at the moment. It's, if, if it's, you, a, great, it's a great title. Yeah. <laughs> but but, but if, yeah, if you want inspiration for you know, spooky occult stuff, that's a good film. Yeah, I'd also say uh, uh, Oculus, isn't it? Oculus. Oh, yes. Oculus for freaking out your players by having them do a scene and then just have them wake up somewhere completely different and <laughs> everything has changed. You're like, well, who did that? I don't know. Let's let's watch it back on the video. <laughs> oh, you, yeah, I'm not going to say any more, but go and watch Oculus. It's great. Of course, other than the, the gaslight kind of stuff we, Matt's been talking about, there is the, uh, you know, the classic uh, Shadows of Yog sothoth campaign where, you know, it starts off in, in a magical order. It starts off at the mm. hermetic, hermetic order of the gold. Oh, no, <laughs> yeah, you see? No, no, keep, keep that in because that's the point, isn't that's it? it? It starts off in the hermetic order of the Silver Twilight, which is somewhat similar to the Golden yeah. Dawn. Um, and, um, you know, you start off and you join, you know, you're members of this, you know, not so secret, but sort of secretive society that is, you know, based around you know, some form of magical practice or magical, you know, research. Um, and then obviously leads on to other things. but And they've uh, quite forward-looking because they've got, you know, a good solution to renewable energy, I believe, down in the basement. Oh, yeah, yeah. It just keeps going and going. That yeah, it does. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, that's actually an interesting model for the use of a magical order in, in a Cthulhu scenario, which is just sort of this idea that it's almost like a filter, that you attract people who are interested in the kinds of things that a, a mythos cult or uh, a mythos sorcerer might be interested in. You sort of get them involved in the harmless stuff and you, you sort of monitor their interests and their activities and, and their personalities and then gradually handpick the ones who, who are you know, worthy of the, the real magic. Equally, the, the converse is true. It could be, actually, the higher-ups who know the secret stuff, they're good guys, and actually they're hand-picking people who are, who's going to be a great investigator, she's going to be a great mm, investigor. Mm. We need to bring them on because oh, yes. they're going to be... You know, well, we you need can to test them out. You can run it as a player organisation in that sense. Yeah, you know, yeah. So, yeah. So, Mike, as we got Mike here, now we failed to say Mike is line editor for the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. 
after like almost <laughs> at the end of the second episode, I think we ought to point that out some poor listeners who live under a rock may not know who I, Mike is. I, I, I'm sure every single one of our listeners has a little statuette of Mike yeah. sitting by their bed at night, just watching them sleep. Yeah, they rub that's his what, little. That's what I like to think, Scott. Yeah, sure. <laughs> give his head a little rub before they go to sleep to bring good dreams. <laughs> you haven't passed me the statue to rub for the yeah, last two sessions. Don't want to do that. Just give it a little yeah. rub. Yeah. And give it a tap. <laughs> So as we got you with us, Mike, I think you should clear something up. There's two skills in the game, the Cthulhu mm. Mythos skill and the Occult skill. Oh, what's that all about? It's really easy. Now, Is it? I, can, I could read you out the Occult skill. I can go through it in detail. Or I can give you the easy, quick to remember oh, version. Now you're just reading from the book. I mean, oh, obviously no, the answer's no, 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 in the book. Yeah. We, 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 we want the personal touch here. Well, Mike. the personal, easy, easy to remember version... If, it's a, if it concerns elements or anything about the Cthulhu Mythos, you use the Cthulhu Mythos skill. If it doesn't, you use the occult skill. That's oh. it. But, okay, I, if we talk about the classic Call of Cthulhu setting, where all the real magic is Mythos magic, what is the purpose of the occult skill? Is it just there okay. as, a, as a sort of intellectual exercise, the way you might have history or something like that? To, to oh, I, I refer facts? my learned friend to the first episode in this uh, in these two podcasts about occult. If you listen back to episode one, you will have heard me going on about human perception and human terms of reference. And that humans don't encounter the mythos and then suddenly know you know, all the uh, contents of the Malleus Monstrum or the Call of Cthulhu rulebook in terms of these are what the monsters are called, these are all the spells, this is what they do, and all that. No, that doesn't, that's not real life, that doesn't happen. You don't, you know, you don't walk in and go, like, I take a history lesson, read a history book, I understand, I understand history now. You know, it doesn't work like that. So we use him in terms of reference. With the, with, so the mythos, and I you know, say this in terms of how it's presented in the rules, how it's presented in scenarios, is a human perception. It's filtered through human perception. So in terms of magic, what might be called a Cthulhu spells, are filtered through human perception. And sometimes, if you're not aware of the Cthulhu myth, if you're not aware of the cosmic truths, as in you have got no percentiles in Cthulhu mythos skill, you're not aware of the cosmic truth in any to any degree. So therefore, your only rational or irrational conceptualization of what you see is based on human understanding and principles and frames of reference, which is what we call the occult. Thank you. <laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's take that one stage further then. Um, so let's say that you have a player in your game who, you know, perhaps they know a little bit about the occult. Their character has a bit of occult skill. And so they say to you, we're obviously in a dangerous situation here. Something spooky is happening. I want to try to protect the space we're all in. I mean, you know, say like in The Devil Rides Out. Yeah. Create a magical circle. I want to carry out the lesser pentagram ritual to you know, banish all harmful presences from this area. What would that actually mean in your game? Is it just, well, it mean, is it just empty nonsense or would it have an effect? Well, first of all, if I refer to my Call of Cthulhu rule book and I look at all the grimoire, let's say, where there is a spell which is about magical circle protection, things like that, there is, there is a spell already written about that. So one, you as a keeper, you ultimately you make a decision. How does human magic if we turn the difference human magic to mythos magic and if we take the perception either human magic doesn't work because it's just made up Hmm. or you take the position where it is some form of 
watered down human version of what was once a powerful mythos spell has been watered down over the years into you know humans can manipulate reality to this finite level and that's what we term as this spell um you you can make a call whether it's without all that or you can decide that human magic is something completely different that it does exist, but it is lesser than Mythos Magic. If you choose, I don't really hold with that view, but you could make that decision in your game. And then ultimately having made that choice of, is it a yes or no, does it work? That informs you what happens in that scenario. But as I say, you know, you can, hopefully there's some guidance in the in books like the Grimoire where you can look up a similar kind of spell and certainly there is a circle of protection or warding in the Grimoire where you can see in terms of mechanical terms what this could do at the kind of core base standard end maybe just vary maybe it's not quite as powerful maybe it does something or maybe it's temporary or, or you just say you know yeah I think I want it to work in this story so it works but next time you use it it's not going to work because that'll that'll get them your, I mean, it might. Surely your, if you have something happen in one game, it's got to happen in the next, doesn't it? <laughs> what, what, what are you that? saying? Is yeah, that? The, myth, the mythos is unknowable. Yeah. If, we're treating, if we're treating it like I do, that human magic is a kind of very, very watered, pale version of uh, mythos magic, then that means it is mutable. It can change. So, I mean, if that were the case, I mean, would you perhaps allow a player to to use the occult skill in a similar way as the Cthulhu Mythos skill for improvising rituals that might be watered down or or would that be going too far with it? Again I think if it falls into the character concept I th- and I think it, it makes sense within the story that you're telling as a group I, I've got no problem with it but equally it may not work in that context it may, you may feel it's giving that player or group of players too much power you might not want to do that for your group I mean a lot of it would depend on the style of game you're running, the players how you know whether they're power orientated or not those are questions i can't really answer it's down to the, the you know the keeper to decide to some degree but you know all the things are possible in this scenario made of a role-playing game thinking of your previous comment though scott about oh i've read or seen devil rides out don't want to cast a uh, circle of protection i'd refer them back to wheatley's introduction to virtually every bloody book he wrote about <laughs> don't dabble in the occult it's pretty much what he yells at <laughs> Yeah, and it comes down to the beliefs of, you know, I think to some degree you can take that kind of, the kind of the whole kind of crucifix and vampire kind of mythology where, you know, some will argue that just a vampire seeing two sticks held together to look like a crucifix will recoil from it to other versions of the vampire that you have to believe in the crucifix to make it work. Yeah, that wonderful scene from Fright Night where uh, the vampire is, is closing in on the hero and the hero holds two popsicle sticks up and the vampire just goes, you have to have faith for that to work. Exactly, and I think that applies for the mythos. That thing of using the occult skill for actual magic is a little bit like what we put in the rule book about you know the supernatural entities, like you just said about vampires yeah. and werewolves and so on. They're not traditionally part of the Cthulhu mythos, but you can do a game based around those. So equally, you could, you know, if you were doing that, you could almost certainly fit the occult skill as a more magical skill into that, I think. You could maybe even run a kind of werewolf-vampire type game and, and leave the Cthulhu Mythos skill out in, in a particular yeah, game absolutely. and have the occult skill take its place, if you so wish. If you want to play a bunch mm. of ghost hunters and you only meet ghosts or trying to find out whether they're true, that's as valid a good experience of gaming as, as running after deep ones. Can't hack I mean, the RPG. In terms of the actual occult skill, I did paraphrase what it actually says in the rule book. In terms of, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I paraphrased into a few bullet points. But, I mean, you know, identify and recall details from occult books. That's not mythos tomes. That's mm. occult books. Yes. 
recognise occult ciphers, perhaps in combination with the sci- with you know cryptography or the science scale or whatever, because there are many occult books are written in occult ciphers, mm. recall details from folklore and the like. So you want to research growl law or Arthurian law or whatever it is that can fall under occult. Identify occult practice, so rituals, symbols, so whether you're looking at pentagrams on the floor and looking at, is that a circle of protection? Is it warding? Is it divination? Is it some form of hedge magic or, or high ritual magic? It will recognise um, certain belief systems or religious orders or magical orders, such as, you know, uh, paganism, Wicca, OTO, whatever it may be. That's what the occult skill kind of does, but like many color skills, it's quite broad in its scope and application, dependent on the the kind of style and nature of the story of the game you're running. You know, you can make it to what you want it to be, but clearly, if it's about magic, is it real magic, e.g. Cthulhu Mythos, or is it about human magic, that's occult? So how would we use the occult in our games? Um, I mean, one thing that occurs to me is there's a big decision that you can make as a keeper. Is the occult real or is it not real? Is it a set dressing for the Cthulhu mythos? Or is it just totally false and there is nothing real behind it, but they just, you know, just got an adventure where there is no supernatural, but there's some, you know, occult stuff going on as it would in the real world? Yeah, I mean, I think there's plenty you could do with that. I mean, just because there isn't any magic and there aren't any monsters in the world doesn't mean there isn't going to be intrigue. You could have quite a lot of fun just with almost the mundane aspects of it, because one thing that we perhaps hinted at a few times is that the occult world is full of very strange people. Magical orders are, like any other kind of society, are, are full of power plays and dysfunctional relationships and and schisms and people going off to do their own thing and lots of backstabbing. And I, I think just almost a mundane game set in that world would potentially be quite interesting. I think, you know, go back to what occult means, it's hidden, the hidden secret knowledge, that kind of stuff. Most games about Call of Cthulhu is about finding out about hidden secret stuff. So, I mean, the cult is very much at its heart in that sense, in, the kinds of, in terms of the texture of the word. But magical organisations as player organisations, or mm. as, you know, villainous organisations, or a bit of both, perhaps, to make it the immoral ambiguity there. The search for the hidden, in terms of humans, is what will lead many to actually discover you know, fragments of truth about the realities of the Cthulhu mythos. And actually, you know, after they've done their 60% gained in occult skill, then make some connections and find a bit of the Necronomicon and start adding their, sorry, added to their Cthulhu mythos skill. So, you know, in terms of the game context, you know, that, that, that route through occult research could be the step, the doorway, the gateway to opening the fire of Cthulhu mythos, where they either then become a follower of the Cthulhu mythos in some form or fashion, or, in fact, the opposite, where they actually get repelled, where they suddenly realise, I've suddenly discovered part of the real secret here, and I realise what, you know, we are playing with fire, and I need to step away from it, and I, will, and I don't want to deal with anyone about it again. So when the investigators call, they act really suspiciously, they're not interested, because they're trying to keep the Cthulhu mythos out of their lives. Mm. And, you know, and the players actually, you know, innocently are festering it all up or you know equally they could be the mythos sorcerer or the cult leader or they they want to start a cult would you like to join whatever it may be (laughs) that's a very easy you know individual or small group that work together to try and you know do some form of a cult practice or or research you know can apply 
if you base your occult around people about you know what people are doing in terms of the search for or the practice or utilization of hidden knowledge that can be quite useful in terms of helping you to inspire scenarios and characters and scenes and, and development in that kind of way I try to go down a route where I'll use the occult, but then have it as someone is trying to use an occult method to perform X, Y, or Z intended goal and have something mythos use that as an opportunity to do their own thing with it. It leaves the question open, well, if the mythos didn't get involved, would it have worked? And let people draw their own conclusions. Would, <laughs> it, would it have worked? Wouldn't it? That's, that's down to you. That kind of sounds like they're doing it so wrong, it's right. Yeah. <laughs> It's a Kalatu Barada necktie. <laughs> <laughs> There's another idea I had, which yeah, perhaps takes things in a slightly different direction. Going back to the idea of chaos magic and and you know these artificially constructed beliefs in the mythos, which is an alternative Call of Cthulhu campaign setting that's set in what is ostensibly our world, a world where you know Lovecraft was a writer of pulp fiction, where these entities are all made up, but where you do have you know chaos magicians and other practitioners who are you know calling upon these these mythos deities over and over again, and just through the power of belief, a sort of almost bringing them into our world, manifesting them, but they're not necessarily these monsters from outside space and time. They are the, the monsters of our own imagination. There's a precedent for this in terms of if you want some inspiration. I mean, it's not quite modern day, but I mean, the film Cast a Deadly Spell and the follow-up mm. film... Um, Witch Hunt. Uh, Witch Hunt, yeah. Witch Hunt. Yes, yeah. Deal, you know, I mean, there are scenes where Hollywood uh, film uh, uh, crews are summoning up the dead to uh, you know, act or, or get information <laughs> on scripts and things like that. They're utilising, you know, magic in a real-world setting in a kind of alternate way. You know, yeah. slightly not quite what Scott was saying, but it is a similar. It's a in terms of how the game would play, how different that would be from normal Call of Cthulhu, the fact that you're fundamentally perhaps faced with a lot of the same problems, but but at the same time, you know, knowing that on one level they're not real. Ultimately, it does come down to like, you know, if you want to take the hard line view on all of this, then the answer is no. That basically all human occult endeavour ultimately is reductive and leads to zero because it isn't the answer. There is no hidden knowledge that humans can comprehend or gather for themselves until they are, until it is imparted by the truth of the cosmos through experience or some direct contact with that cosmic truth, uh, which we see time and time again is evidenced by man's inability to cope with that cosmic truth. So therefore you have to accept that really man striving to, or humanity striving to find the secret answers of the universe through occult practice and ritual and research, ultimately they cannot do that. Or if they do, ultimately it will lead them, or a few isolated individuals, to more of the, the true cosmic truths, which ultimately they will be unable to cope with. That, I mean, that's the hardline view. If you want to take a purely kind of Lovecraftian, you know, this is how it is, that's how it is. And the game um, works like that just as well as it does if you want to kind of do any variation of, well, a court might give you a bit of knowledge here or might help out here, or it could be, you know, rewired mythos in some way. You know, it works as well for all of those. But that's the hardline view, and I think it was only fair to say that, you know, that's perfectly valid too. It's all This is all rubbish in the game. Thank you. Thank you. 
Well, once again, we have come to that time of the show when we say thank you. Well, in this case, sing thank you. Because as well as thanking everyone who's listening and all the people who back us via Patreon, uh, we have someone new to thank. We got through most of our thanks in the last episode. However, we do have one $5 backer left to thank through the medium of song. And it is Amelia Faulkner, who is actually an old friend of ours. We know her under another name, but uh, <laughs> Amelia Faulkner is the name under which she writes uh, novels. She writes uh, stories of um, LGBT romance and erotica of a paranormal nature. We, we, we will link to her Goodreads page from the show notes. Yeah, I was saying, uh, reminiscing a little earlier, thinking she's the one person whose first impression has lingered <laughs> in my mind more so than anyone else I can think of. In fact, the first day I met Scott in person. Uh, going over to uh, his place to play a game of cult. Uh, I knock on the door in this scary neighbourhood. Uh, the <laughs> the door... mean streets of New Bradwell. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Um, the door opens quickly and there's this person towering above me. Evidently not Scott, but still says, Hi, I'm Scott. I've got breasts. <laughs> Just me stunned on the door going, What the hell? <laughs> <laughs> But yes, anyway, we would like to say thank you very much, Amelia. Thank, thank you for backing us. And um, yes, we, we, we have a song for you, or something that we're going to call a song. Yeah, Indeed. thank you very much, Amelia. Indeed, Amelia, enjoy yourself. <laughs> Amelia Falconer. Amelia Falconer. Amelia Falconer. Amelia Falconer. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. No, thank you. No, thank you. Thank you. Ha ha. Ha ha. Thank you. Very much. Very much. Amelia Volkner. Meanwhile, on social media, we've had a great review from an American listener of ours, Test Subject eighty six B one at. Uh, the the at is a typo. That should have been a colon. Sorry. Eighty six B one colon. <laughs> I don't know if you know how to pronounce the colon. I mean, who knows? Who knows? What a delightful podcast! Discovered this on what would normally be a boring drive from Dallas to Houston. Great insight into Lovecraft and one of my favourite pastimes: horror gaming. Great job, guys. Yeah, yeah, I did actually check on Google Maps to see how long a drive that would be. And yeah, you, you, get, through a a drive. Of, you get through a lot of episodes. So yeah, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm glad to hear we relieved the tedium for you there. Uh, and thank you very much for the review. Uh, if anyone else feels moved to give us a review, we, we would be ever so grateful. And we've had some great feedback about our recent episode about Hastur. So good they named him once. <laughs> <laughs> Jean-Michel Abrassart on Facebook says... The part where you try to trace the link between Haster and the King in Yellow is fascinating, one being an avatar of the other. Amazing to see how gaming has changed the mythos, adding sometimes very important things to it. Yeah, and this is something that kind of really surprised me when we did the episode, that um, we, we tend to think, I think, of it being not quite a one-way street, but certainly a very imbalanced relationship, that the fiction shapes the gaming much more than the other way around. How wrong could you be, Mr. Dawood? <laughs> How wrong yes. could you be? Well, c- can you think of any other examples? Yeah, Dungeons and Dragons. No, I'm talking specifically about Call of Cthulhu. Okay, well, I think any role-playing game, there is, you know, there's many of them out there, not just Call of Cthulhu, where there is an invented work game world or, or materials where that then go on to inspire fiction in the reverse. Mm. You know, there is an argument to say that role-playing 
in terms of the the writing and the the materials are are something of an art form in themselves and of themselves Ben you Riggs know. has been arguing that point for a long time. Who has? Uh, ben Riggs uh, runs the Plot Points podcast. Oh. He's also done some work, I believe, in the past for um, Arc Dream or Pagan on Unspeakable Oath. There's just as much work goes into producing a, you know, a scenario as there is a short story, if not more. Oh, definitely more. Over on Discord, Anthony Iams says, I really liked this idea brought up in a couple of different ways in the episode today, that the play itself is a manifestation of the king, and the words themselves, and not the content, are what brings him about. It's very similar to mantras in Varyana Buddhism, in that the syllables of the mantras are the deity in the form of sound. The syllables mm. themselves aren't really directly translatable, as each syllable is, has innumerable meanings, but rather they're a formula to bring forth the deity. The most famous example of this is Ommana Padmeom, uh, which is the deity, again, something unpronounceable, <laughs> slash something unpronounceable, in the form of sound. I, I do like the idea of, you know, sounds or, or writing or non-living things, or at least non-obvious things, being avatars or manifestations of gods. Or creatures. I mean, Ramsey Campbell's The Plane of Sound is about sound as yeah. a living mm. thing. I think it's always interesting to try and think about what, if the mythos is unknowable and beyond our comprehension, therefore, you know, there could be other things that we find hard to comprehend, such as sound as a physical thing in that sense or, or even words i mean you know there, there's almost, there's or, yeah, almost the christian word, yeah. uh, side of that you know in the beginning was the word and the word was god you're just taking it in a slightly different way mm. also um, what was eric zahn uh, trying to fend off against outside yeah. that window if it wasn't yeah. sound? building a wall of sound or a bridge of sound to the land of nod so you're saying saying phil specter was trying to protect us yes you know, and well, well, he just carried out a human sacrifice in order to do <laughs> so <laughs> well <laughs> I can possibly comment. I'm thinking the king in Pontypool. Yes. <laughs> Kill means kiss. But there are, you know, just, you know, you have, you have only spent 47 hours and, or days on the king in yellow. Um, yeah, there are, there are, there are other that. elements of, you know, the mythos and its wider perspectives <laughs> as well. No, there aren't. And Anakid over on our Discord server said... It is disingenuous to once again tell the narrative that Derleth created the Old Ones Cast Down concept when Lovecraft actually wrote of it in the mound. Also, Cthulhu isn't trapped imprisoned due to the water itself. I don't see how people come to that conclusion. It feels like trying to be contrarian for the sake of it, because Derleth decided to treat the very clearly defined water elemental as a water elemental. Okay, well, I mean, there's two different things here. I did, I mean, it's a long time since I've read The Mound properly, but I did scan it. I mean, when I say scan it, I did, you know, word search for, you know, old ones and, and cast down and stuff like that. And I, I don't know, I'd have to go back through the story in greater detail, but I, I really don't see that Dolithian interpretation of, you know, this battle between good and evil, this war in heaven, and the idea that, you know, like uh, Satan in Paradise Lost, that the great old ones were cast down. It doesn't quite read that way to me. No, just the stars changed and they slept, because when the stars are not right, they do not live. I think there's a real mm. danger here that we, you know, we get under this track of that, you know, well, Derleth tried to do this and Derleth's wrong because he changed <laughs> Lovecraft's viewpoint. I mean, crikey. Every Call of Cthulhu writer, fiction and role play 
interprets things how they like and does their version of it when they write. Yeah, but Derleth did his version, just the same as Brian Lumley did his version, just the same as Ramsey Campbell has done their version, etc., etc. Yeah, the difference is that Derleth and Lumley were wrong. (laughs) (laughs) But no, no, that's, that's like saying your ideas are wrong and that I don't like. That kind of thinking, <laughs> I don't think, is productive. I think, you know, that you may agree or disagree with different ideas, interpretations of the mythos, but they're all equally valid because there is no rule and there is no canon. So, so when I write my supplement that reinvents them all as uh, My Little Pony avatars, then... Dan, that, that, you've got the right to do that. I won't be publishing <laughs> it, but you, you can do what you like with it, Scott. I was thinking My Little Pony. <laughs> I didn't say it. Matt will buy it. <laughs> no, I'm sure Tiff would, but I wouldn't. <laughs> And to wrap up, what are our final thoughts about the occult and Call of Cthulhu? What do we make of the idea that there are people out there who believe in the actual existence of of the Lovecraftian deities? They know the truth. I think there's a lot of people out there in in in, in the world historically and now and in the future that believe strange things that may or may not be true, probably aren't. Which is no difference, really. I think the the key difference is um, understanding the difference between fiction and non-fiction. Yeah, I think if he'd written it 2,000 years ago and said it was testament, it'd be different. But as it was written, kind of almost in living memory, it's harder to give credence to. And it was ostensibly fiction. And he said it was fiction, and he said he didn't believe in it. And he sold it in fiction books. Yeah. (laughs) It wasn't wasn't in the non-fiction section. So people believe all sorts of stuff. I can't account for that. Yeah, I can't account. Yeah, people people have many strange and wonderful beliefs. They do. Um, yeah. It makes, over, a, wonder- all it makes a wonderful world. And that's what it is. <laughs> but, you know. Oh, I dropped the box. I, I have one supplementary question for, mm. for Mike, just to kind of draw a clear division between, like, occult magic and the Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, and that one, that you can get the grease bucket away. Mm. Well, you may need it after this. <laughs> So, in a fight between Wilbur Waitley and Harry Potter, <laughs> which I think encapsulates everything we've discussed I think you're right. today. I think you're right. I mean, what, what would be the outcome? Well, my heart wants to go for Wilbur. A but, dog but took him out, for God's sake. But a little no, kid wizard could do it. <laughs> a dog that has none of the preconceptions of humanity, has no fear, a noble hound, a noble beast, guarding ancient law smells the corruption and unearthliness of Wilbur Whitler and what does it do? It launches itself at him full mm. might without any hesitation or regard for its own personal safety thereby doing a service for you know for the greater good yeah, I think is beyond question. So, so if I understand you correctly you're basically saying that if Harry Potter were maddened enough to bite Wilbur Whitley's throat out he'd be in with the chance. I think so. Right. I think that's fair. There's a bit of fanfic I'd read. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's dangerously close to being erotic fanfic. Yeah. I mean, they, they start out wrestling with each other on the floor of the, the, the library, but who knows where it ends up. With all those tentacles, they, they, they're going to end up somewhere, aren't they? Wilbur slash Harry. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to go there. <laughs> well, that's all the magical revelations we have for you today. Until next time, it's a good night from me. Cheerio from me. Farewell from me. Goodbye from me.
hear music. Hey! <laughs> Blasphemous Tomes.com mm.